Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you for coming. Wow. Just so we want to know where we are today. It's this art exhibit, which was created by Jonah Freeman and Justin Lowe, a recreation of the Ratfink Room, which was the original full-time comedy club in New York that featured performers like David Suskind and Ingrid Bergman and Ray Bolger from The Wizard of Oz, Joey Adams, and Jerry Lewis. Amazing, amazing place here. So you got to check it out here. And I really want to thank all of you so much. You guys have been so supportive. And as I always do, I sit across from my guest, and I never know what I'm going to say. But as I sit across from Gary Goldman, I talked to him before the show. One of the things that resonated with me was comedy for Gary is like an addiction. Even though an addiction is a connotation that's negative, I think if you really want something bad enough, whatever you want to do in life, it has to be an addiction. You have to rinse, lather, repeat over and over and over again. And I asked Gary before he did his last special on Netflix, which was amazing, by the way, you should check it out, called It's About Time. I asked him, how many times did you go on stage in the year before you did your special? And he told me 35 to 50 times a month. For a normal stand-up comedian, let's say who's working in Los Angeles, maybe they get on stage three to five times a week if they're lucky. So let's just pretend you're a comic who's lucky enough to get up 12 times a month. Gary Goldman, let's say we'll go to the low end, 36 times a month. Who's going to be three times better at the end of the year? The guy that goes on 12 times a month or the guy who goes on 36 times a month? 
I said something to Gary before he came on. I said, when you got through that last hour special, were you sitting in the dressing room thinking, I did it? Or were you thinking to yourself, God, I got to get ready for my next hour special? He said, I want to get ready for my next hour special. And Gary is the kind of person who studies greatness. The movie Rocky is one of my favorite movies. I've seen it five times. And people say, you've seen it five times. Why did you see it five times? Sitting across from a guy who's seen Rocky <laughs> over a hundred times. A hundred times. Not just because of the story of Rocky, I bet, but the story about a guy, Sylvester Stallone, who worked hard to write a screenplay that he wanted to star in. And everybody in Hollywood said, we don't want you in this picture. And he kept saying no, even though they offered him tons of money until he could star in it. And Gary is the kind of guy who always has that attitude and that work ethic. And one of the nicest things he ever did for me, he bought me a ticket to see Aerosmith at the Staples Center. And we were looking at Aerosmith and we were watching this 60, God knows, 65-year-old guy, Steven Tyler, dancing around the stage and giving every song, every possible effort. And when I think back to Aerosmith, I always remember the first song that they did, Dream On. Mm. And I think of that song as an anthem, not just for myself, but for Gary, for a lot of people. And I remember Gary when he first did The Tonight Show. And I remember a joke that he did that to me was so wonderful because as a comic, if you can go on stage and in the first 20 seconds, you can tell the audience what you're about in a lovable, incredibly intelligent way, you're golden. And you said, I'm 26 years old. I live at home with my mother. <laughs> Let me tell you something, everybody. If you're waking up in your bedroom from a child under Star Wars sheets, the force is not with you. <laughs> and so my lesson for today, if there is a lesson, if you can do those kind of things, if you can be nice to people, generous, kind, and your work ethic is harder than everybody else's, and if you can study things that mean something to you over and over and over again to the point where you realize that you can be that kind of person, I can guarantee you you'll have a shot at the kind of career that Gary Goldman has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Huh? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and my guest, Gary Goldman. I'm going to give him the proper introduction. I know some of you are going to have to wake up after this, but I want to give <laughs> him the right introduction. At the young age of six, Boston's Gary Goldman always loved late night television and dreamed of being a guest one day. That dream came true. And he has appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Show with David Letterman, The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson and Craig Kilborn, Conan, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Pete Holmes, Last Call with Carson Daly, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. I'm sitting next to a guy who is one of the rare people in 
comedy. He has done every single late night show there is. No blackballing here. <laughs> His brand of clever original comedy has delighted audiences of all ages over America. And the New York Times recently wrote that Gary is finally being recognized as one of the country's strongest comedians. Gullman was born in 1970 in Peabody, Massachusetts, and graduated from Boston College in 1993, where he received a football scholarship, playing as a tight end of all positions. After college, Gary held jobs as a barista, a doorman, a waiter, an accountant, high school gym teacher, and a substitute teacher. In his early days of stand-up, Gullman would try out his stand-up routines on his high school-age students before bringing them to the stage each night. Gullman's breakthrough success came after appearing on the second and third seasons of NBC's Last Comic Standing and guest starred in season four. In 2006, Gary was invited to join Dane Cook's Tourgasm Tour, which eventually became a television series on HBO. In 2008, Gullman served as host and writer for New England Sports Network's Comedy All-Star Series. Gullman performed three times at the NASCAR year-end banquet. Let me tell you something. Most people just get asked one time, <laughs> three times, and at Madison Square Garden as part of the New York Comedy Festival. Other festivals include the Las Vegas HBO Comedy Festival and the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, where he was a new face and broke out and got his first television development deal. Gullman guest starred on Inside Amy Schumer and also has performed at over 100 colleges, including Yale, Harvard, Boston College, Tulane, Villanova, Boston University, NYU, and others. Gullman's body of work includes a half-hour Showtime Network special, two Comedy Central specials, a Netflix special, and four comedy albums which include conversations with inanimate objects, all I want for Hanukkah is Christmas, no one can defend, and it's about time. Goldman's specials on television include Boyish Man in 2006, In This Economy in 2012, and most recently, you gotta check it out, his Netflix special, It's About Time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, it's an honor, Gary Goldman. Thank you, Thank you. wow, it's really, uh that was really nice, Barry. Thank you. I just sit across from you, and I just feel this overwhelming love about you. I'm not imagining that, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I generally uh, warm up to people very quickly um, when I feel a uh, uh, kinship or safety. And, and uh, yeah, I've, I've adored you since the moment I met you at the, at the old uh, office on uh, 57th and Broadway, and then we went over to the Cosmic Diner for lunch. And I've had a lot of fun hanging around with you and talking comedy, and you really, you really get it. And, and you're one of the greatest, uh, you give one of the greatest pep talks that anyone's ever, ever given. I feel like a, r a real comedian when I hang around with you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that first meeting at the Cosmic Diner? Do you remember anything from it? Yeah, you said um, uh, that you're not ready, and that... Um, you should go back to Boston. You've got to you've got to kill every time, man. You've got to kill every time, and that was uh, that was something that uh, that helped. I th I think it, it, it put a little bit of the put a little bit too much pressure on me, which I already have a lot of pressure on myself to try to do well every time. But it was uh, it was realistic and it was reasonable, and it's and it's true. Every time you go up there, you're getting the ears and eyes of all those other comics and people in the room to spread the word of your of your talent, so it's 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 important. I I, th I think to um, to at least put your best foot forward every time you get on stage. To not mail in a not mail in a set, and at least 
at least care. So that was that was one of the lessons I learned from that day. And then um, I just uh, and th and th those became my marching orders: go out there and kill. And I I I was I forget who told me, but it's it's hard to make a. a change somebody's mind after you've made a bad first impression. So it was that was the other part of it. It was like, I'm really going to have to bring it the next time they see me. And so I went back to Boston for at least um, at least a year and a half or, or two years before I showed you guys any any stuff. And by then I was I was I was much stronger. And within nine months I did. I did the Montreal Comedy Festival, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Show with David Letterman, and, and Comedy Central's Premium Blend, all within nine months. Got a quarter of a million dollar development deal from, from Fox. I think when I say that to somebody, I honestly think sometimes I'm testing them to see if they really want it badly enough and have what it takes. And you came back a year or a year and a half later and showed me what you were doing, and I was just blown away and your talent was so extremely unbelievable at the time and you were so prepared that when I saw you when you came back I was like my god it's almost like this guy's been working non-stop to say take yeah. that motherfucker yeah I, d I don't think I was vengeful or anything like that but I was <laughs> I, <laughs> I was um, driven and I remember my my mantra after uh, you know a bad show or just a rejection was always, well, could you be working harder? And inevitably, inevitably, the answer is yes. You can always be working harder, and it and it and it sucks because you'd like to be able to sit sit back and and, and relax for a while. But there's always something more to. Do. I don't I don't know if you saw that um, that documentary that Bruce Springsteen did about about making Born to Run, but he went over every single note. From every single instrument on that on that record, Born to Run, which was part of this bigger album, so it took months just to work on the on the record. And it's like if he can do that with something so complicated as a as a song, then I can do it with my you know six line six line joke. Just make sure all the words are are right and the timing and the pauses and everything is right, and that there couldn't be a better a better word to say something or a quicker or or a more um, interesting way to to say something. So it's like if you can if you can learn from somebody like like uh Bruce Springsteen how to work harder that, that's that's a great great opportunity that w that was that was very meaningful to me but this is the difference Springsteen he can work on his song in the studio over and over again get the headphones on play it back okay a millisecond earlier we should go here no just a half a second earlier good comedy there's never the same show twice. No. You could time out Gary's set for his first Tonight Show in every comedy club he worked it out in, and every set would be a different time. Gary could do his first Tonight Show set a week before and kill, but then he could get on the Tonight Show and maybe Jay Leno cackles really hard in the middle of something, and then the audience does a second laugh, and then he's got to reset his timing, but then the audience might applaud for a joke that doesn't normally get an applause break, and now there's 15 seconds of applause, and he's got to reset his stand-up again. So comedy, no matter what you do, no matter how much you prepare for it, every single show is different. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's a great, great point about just you have, 
You have your own editor, which is you, you know, cutting things down, cutting things out, adding things. And then you have this audience who is just um, a, uh, a rogue editor. You never know what you're <laughs> going to get from this, from this editor. They're, they're always going to be, um, you know, somebody drops a, a waitress drops a plate or something like that, and then you've got to adjust. So, yeah. And then when running new material and you're, and you're adding things and taking things out and... and uh, that's that's really humbling, man. Because the the audience is uh, ultimately the 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 final the the editor in chief. Yeah, but a great artist understands that sometimes you can't listen to what the audience tells <laughs> you. You have to listen to what your heart tells you. And sometimes you think to yourself, okay, well, let me try that out another five times. You're polling different audiences to see to see what uh, what jokes are actually worth worth keeping but there, there's also a party that just takes a lot of uh, a lot of strength to go up there after the fourth or fifth time that you've done something that you believe in or you, or you know works works in your head or, or works for you or makes you happy then um, then just leaving it in the in the uh, in the past because it's because uh, it just it, it dulls the performance it makes the audience go to sleep for for too long tell our audience a bit that when you were at your lowest point, you just didn't have the skill set yet, how to make it work, but it was a brilliant bit. You gave up on it, but then you looked in your notebooks years later and you brought it back and you ended up making it kill. Um, there's one about role playing with my, with my girlfriend and uh, we, uh, you and I had to make a, a, a very quick decision when I, when I guest starred on Last Comic Standing. Did I want to do this joke that they had just chopped up and, and um, taken the, the heart out of, or did I want to do this joke that I had only performed at a, at a uh, half a dozen open mics, but that I just, I loved, and we giggled over it, and we, we just loved it. And um, I did it, and uh, I did a, a three-minute version of it, and there was just silence. Silence from a TV crowd is just is just the the most deafening and the, and, the, and the most heart wrenching, and um, and so that was in 2005, and then I did it uh, about a thousand more times in between then and 2014 when I when I did it on on Conan. It was you know one of my most popular my, one of my most popular and requested routines is about role playing with my girlfriend. The joke the premise is that uh, I never actually intend on having any sex with her. It's about it's about the it's about the role of me being a professor at a at a college. <laughs> but and and I I um I don't think she's a good enough student really to to <laughs> to, to, to have been admitted in the first place. So so that was the that was the thing, but but I, I remember the um I just remember after doing it on television Colin Quinn saying, You gotta get more gotta get more specific and then I spent the next ten years trying to get more specific with it and, and trying it out and and also doing it in front of audiences who didn't like it but doing it like it was um the greatest thing that had ever been that had ever been written just because it's long it's five or six minutes long and and I just would not um once I started I, I, I refused to stop and and there would be people just um Falling asleep in their in their chairs or o openly having conversations, and I was just like, no, this is. I had to keep telling myself this is, this is at the very least very different from what what other people are doing, and sometimes that's enough to keep a joke going in my in my act and in my head. Is it, at least it's at least it's different from what I'm from what I'm hearing. It's not 
it's not another joke about the answering machine, as, as Norm MacDonald would say. Which did you do more? Work out that bit or watch Rocky? <laughs> uh, I definitely worked on that bit more than <laughs> I watched more than I watched Rocky. My, um, I, I still watch Rocky from from time to time, and I I, I have a, a bit about watching Rocky as an adult. How you you don't notice him drinking raw eggs in the same way. You, you're like, oh, that's not good for you at all. <laughs> cholesterol and salmonella. And <laughs> yeah, so. Tell us two other movies that you've watched a ton of times that you think help you apply to your life and your profession. Um, have you ever seen Quiz Show? Yes. All right, so Quiz Show is just about um, what a dastardly place television is and um, how underhanded they they can be. And, and there's, a, there's a moment where um, the guy's going to get in a lot of trouble. He's going to be indicted for the fraud involved in the in the quiz show scandal, and um, he offers he offers the investigator a bribe. He says, "How would you like to have a panel show?" And the uh, the investigator just just laughs at him. And I just uh, I I admired that so much. I was like, because because most Americans, if they had an opportunity to be on on TV, no matter what the price, they would they would pay it, even if it even if it meant. Um, you know, co um, combining, uh, complying in fraud or, or overlooking fraud, and it was it was just uh, it was just I really admired the guy who just it was Rob Morrow. He just he just laughed. He said, "I'll get back to you on that." And I'm thinking, "Oh, a panel show. I wa wonder what I could do with a panel show." <laughs> <laughs> so so I admired that. And then um, I'm trying to think another uh, another movie that I could watch over and over again is is Waiting for Guffman, and I just love. <laughs> I just love how the actors commit in that to the to the characters. It's just it's just so um, inspiring how they committed to this this stuff that wasn't even written down and and that they improved the whole thing. That 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 movie's incredible. You've been doing comedy, I believe, over 20 years, correct? Yeah, yeah. Never tell anybody. But <laughs> that was advice from you. Never tell anybody how long you That's have been right. doing it. Never tell anybody how old you are. Some you know, 36, and I've been doing it <laughs> for. Um, Six years. Six years. Do you ever watch anybody who's a peer of yours and you look at him and he gets off stage and you just go in the back of the dressing room and you say to yourself, Jesus Christ, I'm never going to be as funny as that guy. Oh, my God. Yeah, every, every night I do that with somebody. <laughs> every night? Not every night, but there's, there's usually a night where I'm watching somebody. I mean, luckily there's enough mediocrity out there where I'm... <laughs> Where I can see somebody and be like, "All right, I'm in the right field. I I, I can bring something to the table." But um, you know, most recently I watched uh, Ted Alexandro the other night at the at the Comedy Cellar, and he just did 15 minutes of brand new material, and it was relevant, and it was timely, and it was um, topical, and just um, just he's uh, prolific and sounds different and delivers it differently. And I was just like, I really need to, I need to. Um, Put more in my notebook and work work harder. <laughs> I I I I uh, I'm not um, I'm not applying myself the way I the way I should be. And it's it's um, it's it's never where you really want to want to quit, but it's like you want to you want to uh, acquit yourself a little bit better on 
on stage and and uh, bring more uh, energy and 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 preparation into into getting on stage and just uh, the more time I spend on stage, the more new jokes I get, the m the happier I am. Have you ever done a set where you went on and you actually walked out and you saw people who you have respect for and you felt the look on their face like? God damn it! Yeah, that's that's happened. That's happened before, and and uh, it makes me very happy. It, it uh, sometimes it makes me feel very um, very satisfied that that, that I am um, that I'm still still productive because you you remember uh, the Boston comedy scene and guys you know got there 45 minutes or hour and they they put their pen down and it was just like what is that. Is that natural? Is that just going to happen to everybody, or or is it just a matter of a matter of uh, having your pen in your hand? Is it, is it? And they're all still there. It's still heartbreaking because it it also could be just uh, genetic. There's just what if the, what if there's just a number of, number of hours you can write, and that's and that's that. And no matter how hard you work, it's just or it just it just gets that much harder to to create new things, or you've you feel like you've covered it all, and and there's just um. Because there's no retirement, there's just cruise ships. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that from an early age, you work this hard at everything. So will you tell our audience the moment where you just shifted your thought process and your philosophy of undying work ethic? No, I, I I think from from a very early age I worked as hard at, at everything, which which is to say as as hard as I as hard as I can under the under the circumstances. I I um I worked as hard when I played basketball and then when I played football and then in school when I wanted to get at good grades I worked I worked very hard and and made. I remember saying, if I'm really going to do well in this accounting class, I have to treat it like it's my hobby. So I have to spend my my extra time that I would normally spend um, watching Cheers or um, or uh, the other new show that was on at that time was Seinfeld. I um, I need to spend it working on my working on my class um, instructions and things like that. So yeah, I I. Um, I brought this work ethic from from way back, and it um, I won't I won't say it it um, well I'll say it, it it wavers because there are there are times when you get caught up in this in this business with the with the business and and um, as as Dan Natterman put so eloquently eloquently he said this business has no business calling itself a business <laughs> and and. Um, but then I, I always hearken back to something that Mike Lacey from the Comedy Magic Club told me about about Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno. They said they never worried about managers and agents, and which is something that you you go through. You have sometimes you have a manager, sometimes you don't have a manager, sometimes you have both, sometimes you have a um, just a good friend who can guide you and get you some some gigs. Sometimes you don't you don't even have that, but. Um, those two guys said uh, we never worried about that stuff for getting t deals to make television show. The question was, am I getting funnier? Am I getting funnier? And if I can answer yes to that question, then I'm on the right I'm on the right path, and I can be um, I can be secure in myself. So I I um, I really try to try to hold to that as as often and as frequently as I can. I mean, there's there's plenty of rejection to go around, but but there's there's nothing that can really stop you from 
from getting on stage and, and continuing to, um, to push that boulder up the hill. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, let's go way, 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 way back. Back to Peabody, Massachusetts. Okay. Tell me what it was like growing up in Peabody, and what was the first inspiration to go into comedy? Um, I, would, I would just see how my family reacted to the comedians on the, on the Tonight Show and how they reacted to movies like Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles when they came on, when they came on TV. That's when where I was able to see them. For some reason, it seemed like they came on more than once a year, but they must have only come on once a year. And, and uh, we would watch them, and my family would just... Uh, being stitches, and we we were uh, we were a, we were a, a weird sect of Jews called um, broke. <laughs> we, were broke. <laughs> we were broke ass Jews, and I remember uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stories was the time I wanted to play hockey, and they gave me this this long speech. If you really want to play hockey, we'll find the money. It's very expensive. We'll find the money um, for you to. Uh, 
participate in this sport that you've shown very little promise in. <laughs> and um, and that, that Jews in general have shown very little aptitude <laughs> for over the years. They're, they would they would give me statistics such as the number of Jews in, in the Hockey of Hall of Fame for playing. <laughs> they were at that time there were zero Jews in the Hockey Hall of Fame for playing. They were they're like you you're more likely to be a Messiah than you are <laughs> to <laughs> Remember there was one time when I was managing you where we talked about how I said there's been 11 Jewish football players in the National Football League. And I said, you know what they all have in common? And you said, what? And I said, they're all adopted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. They made it quite clear that you had a better chance of walking on water than skating on it with the Stanley Cup over my head. I just, um, <laughs> and, and the, 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 the guilt trip was so intense and so well thought out. I mean, there was no way I could, I could, um, I could say no to that. And I, I wound up just playing, playing basketball. And um, that was my, that was my life. Just uh, going up to the park and playing basketball with, with uh, my friends and, and trying to be really great at basketball. And then you know, you, then you start to play against players who, who you just can't believe they're 11 years old and they're dunking and you play from other other cities and more uh, further away and, and you realize, well, I'm probably not going to play in the NBA. And then and then I switched to football and I guess the, the, the city of Peabody was a, was a, a nice size for me to be, um, to st stand out at things. It was a, I was a, big fish in a small pond athletically and academically so i think that that gave me confidence there are about 40,000 people that that live there and it's a um uh middle class bedroom town and it's quiet and uh i still have so many friends there that i visit whenever i whenever i go back and i'm i'm very close to my um friends and 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 family back there so it's um and and you're you're exposed to enough enough variety where you where you um, and diversity where you figure out different types of people so you can put together a good New York showcase, but um, it it also uh, gave you a, a point of view because it was it was different enough as as well as just being a a um, unique suburb. You finish there, and I imagine you apply to a bunch of colleges. I applied to, I had scholarship, well not scholarship offers, but offers to play football at, at uh, Harvard and Holy Cross and uh, UMass, UNH and Boston College. And I, I chose Boston College because it was, um, they, 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 um, it was a, f a full scholarship, so I didn't have to pay for, for anything. The others, you had to apply for aid and they would give you money based on the, on the aid, which I probably could have gotten, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't um, energetic enough to really want to go through all the hoops involved in, in the financial aid process. So obviously you were a good football player for Boston College to give you a... I was, I was an excellent athlete. I could jump really high and I could run really fast and I was, I was, um, I was a good student. So I was a very good um, applicant for them. And, and uh, yeah, but I, I only wound up playing for um, two seasons there and then they, they changed coaches and moved me to offensive line and I just... Um, I couldn't keep the weight on, and I, I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't love it enough to really um, dedicate myself to it. And that's when I, that's when I started writing down jokes on, on uh, pieces of paper in class and things like that. So the fact that you didn't make it in football in college 
that led you to writing jokes now. Yeah, yeah. I probably there's probably part of it, part of um, uh, psychologically where I needed to be the center of attention or something like that, and I and I couldn't do it on the football field, so I decided to try to do it somewhere else. Uh, if if I had to look hard into my into my psyche, then then there's there's part of me that's an exhibitionist and likes to likes to um, show off and be the be the center of attention. So tell our audience about the first time you decided, okay, I'm going to try stand-up comedy. Where was it, and what happened? Um, it was <laughs> it was October eighth, nineteen ninety-three, and I um, you had to call in to Nick's Comedy Stop. So they had a, a comedy night, an um, open mic night there, and and the host of the the MC for the night was was Billy Martin, who's now the head writer at at Bill Maher. And um, I went on there with with about five or six minutes of material, and I ran through that in in like three and a half minutes. And um, the only thing that really worked was this uh, was this impression I did of Seinfeld and Kramer having a having an argument on the on the basketball court. I did impressions. That was my first that was my first intro into into comedy, and it really did well. And and uh, after that, I was I was hooked. It was like they put the spike in my arm, and I, <laughs> and I had to get I had to get more. And from from there on out, I would play anywhere. I'd play in, in downstairs at bookstores with no microphones, and in front of bars, just standing in front of the bar with no microphone, entertaining the the drunks at the bar. And it was just um, anything, and felt every time looking forward to it, and then going home listening to it, being like, well, I could have changed that, and I might have gotten them there, even though it was. It was um, it was futile. It was futile to expect to do well in those in those rooms, and and yet um, I always uh, I, I was always prepared. You're not the only one who started doing impressions, because if you can do a great impression, you can get this huge laugh, this applause break. Yeah. So you're killing with the impressions. You're not doing well with the written spoken word material. Right. How did you avoid not becoming an impressionist with the reinforcement versus the monologist you are today? I, I saw a, a special that Paul Reiser did called uh, Two and a Half Blocks from Home. It was on late at night and I recorded it and I must have watched it two dozen times and uh, he never, he never, um, he never changed his voice. He didn't really raise his voice. He just was himself for an hour and I remember thinking, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. That that's much um, more natural and much more um, honest than what I'm doing on on stage right now. Is just uh, I'm just gonna go up there and, and talk and and I was like and I'm going to and I'm going to bomb for a while. And I remember you know because I was I was killing with these impressions. And then I remember people just being like, oh you're you're bombing. You're getting a friend of mine said you're getting worse. And I remember just thinking, no, you'll you'll see. This will this will work out better in the in the long run. And um, and eventually it did. It took at the, at that time the learning curve is so steep when you're when you're just starting out. So it, it might have not have taken more than six to nine months to get it, so that I didn't didn't have to do impressions anymore. But um, I, I eventually uh, jettisoned the impressions and went all in with my own with my own voice. And then and that. That that put me on the right trajectory to get some, to get some work and 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 get get something that's so so priceless in this business, which is which is some respect from your from the other comedians, the other comedians want to want to work with you and want to give you 
um, opportunities and work and, and give you um, encouragement. And if you, if you show any promise, they're really, really encouraging. I, I noticed that. I noticed it recently when Louis C.K. gave you a call and said, Hey, Gary, yeah. want to come on the road with me? Yeah. Uh, where are you going? Ah, <laughs> 15,000 seat arenas. Right, yeah. Well, the, I, I, was, uh, I was on his last last tour um and uh he would follow me a lot at the at the comedy cellar and he would give me uh tags to jokes that worked and then those tags would work better than anything in the in the joke he was just uh uh magical and so um yeah when he emailed me and asked me to come on the road with him i was like this is like a uh it was like a it was like a master class at, at one point during the during the tour he did 10 minutes on saturday night live and um, ten of the best minutes he had in, on on the tour, and uh, after that Saturday Night Live date, he never did it again. He just he just dropped it, and, and it's just that it's that confidence to be like, oh, I'll write more. There's plenty more where that came from. That I just um, it's it's inspiring, but it's also uh, it's it's daunting to think that's what it takes. There's a there's a reason why he's the he's the best, and and. Um, it's it's obvious in just his his um, approach and his and his work ethic and and his um, and his um, policies towards his his material. And there's a reason why he chose you. He sees the future in you. That's oh. why he chose you. Wow, that's a that's a high compliment. I, I I can't I can't believe that that that's possible. It could have been just that I had an open. Open um, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think this work ethic thing is really fascinating to sort of understand and get inside your brain as to your process from cradle to grave on a routine or a joke. Like, how does it start in your brain to the point where it's perfected? Yeah. Well, I think... Um, I think it, it starts with the with the with the premise, and you get a little bit of a. Um, I I personally get that same feeling, like when uh, there's an episode where where Bugs Bunny can smell gold, and he just he just goes uh, he goes crazy when he can smell gold, and um, there's a part of my stomach. It's the same same thing when you see a pretty girl or or um, a cute dog or something like that. There's something in my stomach that just says, "Oh, this is a." Uh, this is this is something worth um, worth exploring. So take us through one of your jokes. Yeah. What the premise was? Well, like the the premise for the for the Jewish Community Center basketball joke is that they have um, they have collapsible rims on the on the hoops, <laughs> which was um, was uh, you know just it tells you how cautious and insecure Jews are as a as a people. So. Um, now, right there, you've got an opening to go into how insecure we are as a as a as a people, and so so there. Some nights, if I'm doing a really long show, I'll insert the part about um, my family playing a game growing up called um, "Who Would Hide Us." <laughs> and and, and uh, other nights, I just get right down to the to the premise, which is we are so cautious that in a 10-year-old and under Jewish basketball league, they they installed collapsible rims for all the for all the dunking. <laughs> the, 
the, the, and, and then I told the people my mother's reaction to it. I went home and I told my mother, and there's, there's a, a little piece in there, and there's, there are, uh, I mean, the, the, the main thing I've, I've noticed is that, that um, if you've got a premise, sometimes there are other premises within the, within the, within the setup and within the joke where you can work in more, more stuff so you can make a, a layered, a layered joke with a lot of digressions, which I, which is, which is my favorite thing to do, just to try to make a joke longer. It's, it's like you always, you always said you got to try to squeeze every. It's like a, a sponge where you try to squeeze every piece of water out of it before you're, before you're ready to move on. So, anyhow, the the next thing I came up was was just um, comparing the. Uh, the the league rosters in the Jewish Community Center Basketball League to the NBA, where um, there had been uh, exactly four in the history of the NBA, four people <laughs> had smashed a backboard playing basketball. Um, not one of them was a ten-year-old Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, and then the, that gets a laugh, and you have you have. Um, you have confidence from the laugh, and you're like, well, I don't want to end it there. And so what, what could my mother say to that? And she said, well, y maybe it's for the fathers. Maybe, maybe the, because that's also the mother in the, in, the, in the joke is playing the audience. The audience is the, is the, yeah, but what about, couldn't it be for this reason? And you, you want to, as a comedian, you kind of want to answer the, the audience's obvious questions. You don't have to go too far. They're not, they're not um, analyzing it as much as a, as a comedian would, but um, you, should, you should give it a go for, for what could come up as, as objections to the, to the premise so that you can, you can usually make something funny about it. And um, she said, maybe it's for the fathers. And I said, yes, um, Dr. Barry Rosenthal got off on a break Monday night. <laughs> and, and, then, and then it was just fun, having fun with Jewish-sounding last names and the results of their, of their play and their, their incredible slam dunks and, and, um, and, and then the lawsuit that, that followed from the, from, the, from the breaking of the, of the glass and everything that would happen <laughs> with that. So that, that's how I... Um, that's how I wrote that one. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with the breaking of the glass. Oh, right, right, right. There's a, yeah, there's also a, um, you're, you're married if you break the glass. And, and uh, yeah, I just, I just, I, I think I thought that was too ob obscure. People don't really know a lot of Jewish mar marriage rituals. <laughs> but um, <laughs> might, might, might work better on a uh, Sex in the City episode than, than in my, <laughs> in my, in my act. I, I, um, and it, and it's also I'm also careful not to make it too Jewish, so it's you know unapproachable to, to um, what we call the uh, non-Jews in the, <laughs> in the in the audience, which is now people they see you as a really happy, calm, strong, silent type, somebody who has confidence, knows where they are, feels good hmm. about things. Having known you my whole life, right. I know that you've had really gut-wrenching struggles where people don't understand what you go through behind the scenes to get up every day and to be able to do what you do and do it well. You don't become a great artist unless there's some kind of hole blown through you and you have to fill that hole, as the great acting coach Larry Moss said. So do you feel comfortable sharing some of the 
stuff you go through and some of the struggles you've had behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suffer um, and continue to suffer from uh, severe um, uh, depression um, and anxiety. So, um, and it's... Uh, it's it's really really hard a lot of days to to start my days and 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 get going and 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 write and and sometimes I'm a anxious I, I I always I always do my shows I always get on stage I will say that for myself I always have the strength to overcome the anxiety and the and the self doubt to to get on stage because um, I just I I always feel like that's the that's the least you can do is is um, is get on stage and 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 try, uh, but my my depression um, it it colors every 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 accomplishment and every um, every rejection and and things like that. So I'm, I'm I, I always a lot of depressive people point to it as as um, sort of a, a film over their over their life that that just um, that's very gray and 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 it's a cloud and it's and it's uh it's a number of things but it just um it sucks the joy out of things and it and it um and it makes me very um makes me very tired that's the that's the other thing that's that's problematic is that it it um it brings about a lot of a lot of fatigue and and um and also uh ruminations of of regret and ne and negativity and and things like that and and I mean, I can I can fight it a little bit better as the day goes along, but in the morning it's it's a um, it's a uh, it's a battle every every morning to to get out and walk my dogs and feed them and feed myself and and just um, and just uh, there's no I mean it's 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 good this is the this is the case because um, you know very few comedians make enough to retire at at my age. But um, there are there are days where I'm like I can't keep con keep um, coming up with stuff and and continuing to do this. It's just it's just too hard. But it's like you gotta um, you gotta earn a living. And I'm just I'm grateful that the the way I earn my living is is something that is um, is uh, so rewarding in, in in many ways. I mean, there are still nights where the audience is not there to see me. Th um, Luckily, I've been able to to um, cultivate an audience of about 300 people in most cities, and then in New York and Boston and LA, it's probably closer to a thousand where I can perform in front of people who have seen me before and get me, and and they they give me s they're so generous with the, with what they allow me to do on on stage. I can really be myself. But there are, there are nights I was uh, you know in the upper Northwest where there there um, it's a it's a hard it's a hard time finding a 24-hour bagel shop in the in the <laughs> north northwest and and it's just um it's a mixed group people who've seen me before and people who've never seen me before and to and you gotta you gotta perform for for everybody so it's it's um it can be very uh it can be very I don't know. It makes me it makes me sad sometimes because I'm 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 like what what uh what point do I have to get to where there's not somebody in the audience who's watching the Washington State college football game during the 
during the set, sitting in the in the front row watching football during my set, and and the question is, do I do I call him on it, or do I just go through my through my show? It's like a, and a, of all places to set the entitlement that this guy is just like I'm. I'm not only going to sit in the front row. I'm going to watch TV during this guy's act and never look up from the from the thing. And then he had the earbuds in, and it, and it was just like it was um, it was uh, it was. It was um, ego crushing, but um, you know I, I got through it, and I have shows coming up that will be in front of like in in Chicago and Minneapolis and and San Francisco, where the people will be people who've seen all my stuff, and and so I can do all my new things, and they'll be they'll be happy, and and they'll wait in line to meet me after the show, and it'll be. It'll be nice. It'll make up for that. But there's there's still a part that keeps me that keeps me honest on stage, which is which is the um, the comedy clubs. They don't they they don't give you that they don't give you that free pass that that uh, that a lot of the big comedians talk about. That you get you get five minutes for being famous when you get on stage, and you just don't you don't get that at the at the comedy club when they're not the when they're not all there to see you. Is it safe to say depression? goes hand in hand with your success as a stand-up comic. When you're on stage, the sadness is lifted, the depression is lifted. When you're on stage, you don't think like you think when you wake up in the morning and you can't walk no. the dogs or feed yourself. Right. Could there be that correlation from going up 50 times a month with every time you go on, it takes away the pain? Yeah. I mean, I I, th I think definitely it's a it's definitely a shot in the arm. I mean, there's also those nights where you're you're putting your um, new jokes up there, and and so you're you're putting your your ego and self-esteem on the line, and that's not that's not that safe. But um, there is an exhilaration when that when that stuff works. That's that's uh, that's a um, you know a, a vitamin B12 shot, and and it, and it really. It really helps. It's um, it's not the best way to treat depression, but it's a um, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty quick fix, uh, night to night. And there are um, I mean, since this last special, I will say that I haven't I haven't been as um as dogged in my in my night to night um, performing because I've been I've been on the road like at the, at this point like. I think eight weekends in a in a row, and then I get I get back during the week, and I'm just um, I'm pretty pretty tired from flying and 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 jet lag and and everything. So I'm just doing, um, you know, a Sunday and a Tuesday, or a Tuesday and a Thursday, and then and then on um, on Wednesday I always I always keep it open for my my um, uh, depression support group that I <laughs> that I go to uptown. I, I go and and talk with a lot of other depressives about how we feel and th and that makes me um know that I'm not not alone in this in this battle there are a lot of people who have it you know a lot worse so so I mean uh, along with getting on stage I think I think it helps to be um it helps to be grateful I I really have um a, a career that that um is uh very forgiving of my of my schedule and my time constraints and and I'm very grateful that I've been able to um, excel in something where where there there's a lot of there's a lot of luck involved and is we know plenty of guys who are more talented than me that just couldn't get a couldn't get a, a foothold in the in the business and it's and it's um 
and it's sad and it's and it's frustrating. You what what about this guy? Can't can't we bring him along? And it and it's just um, it's just uh, I'm I'm grateful that I was able to to um, put together this this fan base based on um, probably the last comic standing and then the the specials that I've had on on Netflix. So I, I'm I'm very grateful for that and try to concentrate on that when I when I um, when it gets really when it gets really low when it gets really dark. You and I, we've known a lot of people in this business, and we've known a lot of people who suffered from depression, who listened to the stronger voice and took their own life. You suffer just as much as Richard Jenny suffered. You suffer just as much as many of the comedians whose names shall remain anonymous. Obviously, in your life, you've had those thoughts. How have you fought past them when others who were brilliantly talented couldn't? Um, I have my mom and I have my, my friends. So when I, when I think about that, I think of the, you know, the devastation I would, I would wreak in their lives by, um, by taking my own. And there's also the there's also the the part where where you've gotten so low that you've um, that you've written the note and <laughs> you um, you have the plan and then something comes along and uh, and you're like man I would have missed out on that so there's um, there's a there's a reason to hold on there's there's something and and I mean it's it's it sounds corny uh, because so many comedians have taken the um, taken the atheism to the stage, but I, I still believe in in, in God and, and still believe that there's that He um, is uh, looking out for me and would be um, would be pissed if I didn't see it through to the uh, to the end. So there's a um, yeah there's a combination of of things and um, yeah it gets it gets dark, but I've um, I've been able to ward that off, and I totally, I totally can um, identify with with Rich Jenny as to as to what he was feeling when he when he uh, when he did that. I totally, I totally get that. I'm like, yeah, this this business will make you wanna um, will make you wanna quit everything, and just um, life in life in general is 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 a slog, and um, and you add to it all the all the um, I mean, the sad thing with Rich Jenny is that he was um, he was so revered by the other by the other comedians and so appreciated by the other comedians. But I I, I never got the idea that he really uh, thought much of him himself as a as a person or or comedian. I always I always saw him as as being somebody who was very um, very hard on himself and 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 very um, very standoffish and 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 solitary. So that that, that that doesn't that doesn't help. I, I I really feel like my friends and my family are are a, a firewall against against um, suicide. On a lighter note, before we move on, tell our audience the moment you went on stage where your name was announced and it was this massive applause. People all knew you and they were there to see you and they paid to see you. What was the first time that happened and what happened? I uh, it's um. I think it was in in um, and I and I could be wrong, but this was a, a, a 
tremendous example of it. The, the old um, Arizona improv, the Tempe improv, had two levels, and so there was a there was a balcony, and it was coming off of Last Comic Standing, and um, you know within a couple weeks of being on TV, and um, it was it was packed, and I just remember the the people who worked there being like, God, you're like you're like rock stars here, and and um, I mean the interesting thing is that uh, the the a lot of times you get to the stage and the applauding has stopped before you even take the <laughs> microphone out of the out of the mic stand and it's like um oh you couldn't have carried me with your with your applause <laughs> to the to the mic stand so i could take the microphone out of the stand give me a little a little bit of working room and and uh but that night it was like wow i got the mic stand out i got my water set up and then um I probably could have had a sip of water before I even I even started that night from all the from all the applause. So that was um, that was cool. The only thing is that they make you think it's never going to end, and that's the that's the not the applause, but the but the uh, level of of um, fame and the and the drawing power, the ticket sales that it's never going to end, and um, and it and it dissipates the further away you get from your TV credits. The further away you get from from um, from selling selling tickets um, in uh, in the early stages, I, I, I feel like now I've built a, a pr pretty solid fan base that will come out in between the in between the specials. But um, yeah, back then it was um, it was kind of a tease. But uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. That was that was really something. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm gonna name some names. Okay. You tell me what comes to mind. It could be a sentence. It could be a story. It could be one word. Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. Um, he was uh, he was like a, a, a ringmaster in in that he brought all these uh, disparate people to to television at night. And but the the only ones I really cared about were the animal acts. And the and the stand-up comedians. I love Joan Embry, and uh, and Gary Shandling. So, those were the. Um, that's what I wanted to see from from Johnny Carson. I I I liked his monologue, and and the sketches were okay. But what I really wanted him to say is, uh, oh, what a great night for a uh, for a comedian, a Friday night, and then bring on, bring on Teddy Bergeron. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Teddy Bergeron was a Boston comedian. He was one of only six comedians who went to the couch. Johnny Carson had this thing where if he liked you, he would give you the okay symbol, but you would stay where you were. If he didn't like you, you wouldn't get the okay symbol. And if he loved you, which has happened six times in 30 years, yeah. he would call you over to the couch to sit down and talk. I think Stephen Wright, Kevin Meany, the late Kevin Meany, and Teddy Bergeron, three of the six comedians were from Boston. Dane Cook. Dane Cook gave me a career. Um, he introduced me to you, and he brought me on the road when he first started to hit, and and um, let me feature for him. So uh, I was living in Los Angeles and just not getting on stage hardly at all. There was a there was a year I got on the Tonight Show more times than I got on at the Laugh Factory. So um, that was uh, when he brought me on the road. That was that was the answer. I got to work on my new jokes and and and. Um, I actually made an album by recording the 20 minutes I would do in between his his headlining set. So I, I did I, I recorded four shows and then cut it down to an hour for uh, for my first album, which um, 
is uh, very lucrative on the on the radio by play by getting plays and royalties from from that album. I've I've been able to make a nice living just based on that. So so that was um, yeah. He gave me a career definitely, and he's a, and he's a friend. Yeah, Don Rickles. Ah, uh, Don Rickles, Mr. Warmth himself. Um, <laughs> I can listen to his album every night. Hello, uh, dummy. Hello, dummy. Yeah, it's 28 minutes of just um, uh, bigotry and racism <laughs> and misogyny and um, anti-Semitism, and it is uh, it is um, gorgeous. He just uh, he he can really he uh, you know you see all these roast battles and everything like that, and it's just it's all an homage to Don Rickles. They're just all doing doing Rickles, and um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, he's the, um, I, I, yeah, I love him, love him. Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer um, is the uh, future of, of comedy, and um, I, I, th I see, you know, her, um, her influence on so many young uh, comedians, not just female, but male comedians as well. Just the influence of being freer and 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 being more honest on the stage, and and um, and she's just uh, and she's really nice too. She's been a really good friend. She put me on her on her show, and she's just um, she's just very encouraging and complimentary. And uh, I really value her her friendship and and her uh, company. So. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Amy Schumer fan. Since the one, one of those people, you see her right away, and you're like, oh, this person's special. This person's going to be a star, and and um, and it has. An, I mean, when somebody's early on, and I mean, I probably saw her. She had been doing stand-up less than three years, and so her stand-up wasn't as strong as it, as it is now. But you're like, oh, this person's going to be huge, just huge. You can tell, man. You must have been salivating as a manager seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was on Last Comic Standing, oh, right. so I had to sign a 67-page oh. contract. Oh, God. you couldn't talk to anybody. The late Mitch Hedberg. Oh, Mitch Hedberg. There's there's a guy with a great work ethic who who wrote all the time and just uh, did new stuff. And I and I feel his his influence in my in my in my writing and in, in that I like I love silly stuff like he did. And um, his uh, his passing was such a such a tragedy because I feel like I had I had I worked a few more years I would have worked with him a few more years and I would have gotten to know him and 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 the 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 little experience I had in hanging around with him I I, I just feel like we could have been very good very good friends so I'll I'll always I'll always regret that and I've I've stayed friends with his with his wife Lynn and um, I just uh, I'm I miss that opportunity and um, I revere him Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, Bobcat Goldthwait was so, uh, he's so funny and such a generous guy, and he, he directed my directed my special and couldn't have been uh, uh, kinder and, and more innovative and, 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 um, and creative in, in how he did it. So I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very thankful to him. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. There's a, there's a guy who I would watch and just die watching and when he was in movies and on TV, and then to become friends with him later on is, is really, um, it's surreal. If you haven't already, I strongly suggest you purchasing Call Me Lucky, which is a documentary oh he did God, yeah. about Barry Crimmins, a comedian who's done industry standards, an amazing documentary. Yeah, that is a great documentary. I loved it. Jay Leno. 
Jay Leno couldn't have been nicer. I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, I know. I know a lot of people have uh, have disparaging remarks to make about Jay Leno, but Jay Leno put me on his show three times, and he uh, talked to my mother when when she visited to see me. And she one time I called her, and he got on the phone with her, and he was just um, he made going on the Tonight Show like it was. Uh, like it was your birthday. He just really knew how to treat the the comedians, and he was very um, he was very generous and down to earth. And I and I really uh, I'll, I'll always I'll always admire him. And uh, another another great story was that when I was when I was 16, my mom got me tickets to see him perform at the uh, the um, Beverly Music Tent, which is still in existence. Theater in the round. And he performed. It was myself and my father that went. I was 16, and my father was probably uh, 62 or however old he was at the at that point. I think he was 62, and we both laughed throughout the entire thing. People don't realize what a strong, strong stand-up Jay Leno was, like as as strong as it ever got, and and how his his act still still holds up. The stuff that he did on Letterman and and his early Tonight Show appearance is still still funny. He he was um, just a monster of a comic. Dave Chappelle. Um, Dave Chappelle, I um, I've been watching since he was like 17 or 18 years old, and um, I'm just uh, I'm in awe of how prolific he is, and and he's one of those guys where the other comedians just just watch him and are like, why do I even why <laughs> do I even bother? Is there really need for anybody else after him? It's like him, Brian Regan, and Seinfeld, and and guys like that it's like why do i why do i bought louis why do i bother getting on stage after these guys they've they've said it all there's nothing else to say they've sucked the marrow out of every joke and 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 dave is improvising uh most of the stuff and and doing a different show every night or a tell is the same way there's just so many guys where you're just like they don't need me there's there's plenty <laughs> there's plenty of good comedy out there and um but uh, yeah, but Dave Chappelle is as, as good as has ever ever gotten, and um, I can't believe you let him go. <laughs> <laughs> Dave was one of my first clients. If you don't know, we worked together for eight years, and it was some of the greatest times of my life. Genius, we can honestly say that. Genius, yeah. I haven't said that that once during this during this interview, but I reserved that for for uh, only a handful of guys, and he is a real genius. The late Greg Giraldo. Oh, Greg Giraldo was a—he uh, was another genius. He was just inspiring. I mean, he um, not only did he inspired inspired comedy, but you could also write down his jokes and read them and and get a laugh because he was such a uh, he was such a precise writer. He really he really was. Um, was uh, a, an, a craftsman and and technically just so um, his j his jokes were were perfect and um, and just really and a nice guy a generous nice kind um, encouraging comedian who j just uh, I think everybody everybody loved him and 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 uh, everybody knew who knew him really really misses him yeah. A man who guest hosted for Letterman and brought you on, David Brenner. Um, David Brenner was the first comic I fell in love with, and he was on the the Tonight Show with with Johnny Carson. That's how I discovered him. But he was also on 
um, the Merv Griffin Show, which was a daytime talk show, and Dinah Shore, which was a morning talk show, and he was on the Mike Douglas Show, which was an afternoon talk show. So he was on everything, and he always had um, jokes that a little kid could could relate to, just about the day-to-day things. And and I think I think he's of all the comedians I I've seen over the years, he was the most influential on my act because I'm a I'm a when it when it all comes down to it, I'm an observational comedian, and that's um, and that's where I l- I learned it from. I learned it from David Brenner and and guys who learned it from David Brenner. And there and there were there were a lot. I think there were a lot of 70s and 80s disciples of of David Brenner, and and some did it um, obviously, and other others did it undercover. But but uh, he was a huge influence on so many so many comedians coming up. Chris Rock. Um, Chris Rock, the uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's the he's the best, but he's the he's the guy who um, who you you have to mention in the in the top four or five uh, comedians of of all time as a stand up, and um, he uh, he's got that work ethic that I admire. And he's just, uh, he's really hard on himself. I remember him just uh, being on stage and having this really funny thing about weddings and him just being like, nah, weddings, too hacky. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in an area that a number of comedians have made a living off of over the years, making fun of weddings and marriage, and and Chris Rock just uh, eliminate that as a subject as being as being too hacky. I thought that was just uh, that was marvelous. And so, um, yeah, Chris Rock is as is as good as it gets, and he's just uh, he's inspiring because um, he just uh, he just. When he, when he's working on a new on a new hour, which he is now, he's just he's relentless about getting it about getting it right. Sound familiar? Different. Yeah, it sounds a little bit familiar, <laughs> but but um, I don't. Uh, I I'd, I'd like to be able to get the stage time that he does. That's that's one thing that that I. Um, you can't I, get on at the Laugh Factory. Still? I, I I can't get on at the Laugh Factory, <laughs> and I can't I can't walk on at the clubs and get and get an hour to just work on my. Work on my shit. I, I always, I I have more opportunities like that now than I've ever had, but I don't have those those um, those opportunities that are that are saved for like three or four guys in the in the business who can just walk on and, and go on for an hour. I just got so. a call from Brad Williams. He was in Denver at the Comedy Works. I said, "How you doing today?" He said, "Well, I'm taking a night off tonight." I said, "What do you mean you're taking the night off? You got the Friday. You're sold out." No, taking a night off. Why are you taking a night off? Amy Schumer called. She's coming in to do her hour, and I'm gonna oh my have God. a great time and watch her and put my feet up. Good for him. That's uh oh, I'd be I'd be furious. <laughs> 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 I need I need that hour. I got new jokes, man. I got new jokes. <laughs> Last one. Your mom. Uh, my mom. My mom has had um probably uh half a dozen jobs in my in my lifetime, and they all lasted for you know between five and, and ten years each and everywhere she's she's worked she's uh, been the um, like the glue person the person that everybody checks in with and, and talks to when they get there and then they have lunch with her and then they say goodnight at the end of the day to, to Barb her name is Barbara but everybody calls her everybody who loves her calls her Barb and everybody loves her and and um, she's just uh, she's that um, 
she's that wise ass on every 70s sitcom and and she's got a, a a line and a joke and she's got um she's got stories and she's just uh she's just the m one of the most charismatic people i've ever met in my in my life and um and she, uh, you know, she tells me she struggles all the time with f fear, doubt, and in insecurity. But you would never know it the way she interacts with, with people. Sound familiar? Here? <laughs> you would, you would never, you would never know it because she just is the, uh, always the life of the party, and and always, um, she'll never, she'll never throw the party. But if she goes to your party, you'll be glad that she went, she went there. She, she can't, she can't get organized enough to throw the. For the party, but she's a great party guest. Your proudest moment in show business? Uh, my proudest moment in <laughs> show business, I would say, um, I would say making it into the uh, into the house on Last Comic Standing when I when I uh, became um, uh, one of the top ten uh, comedians on that that season of Last Comic Standing. So that was that was. Um, that was one of my proudest. That was my proudest moment in, in show business when I made it to the to the final round of Last Comic Standing. Yeah. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Well, I would say one of them was was um, this is probably the the best one because it 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 led to a uh, an hour of material. I um I went completely uh completely broke. Because I um, I fell in love with a woman who wanted to buy a farmhouse, um, and so I bought her a, a farmhouse, and she um, she fell out of love with myself and the farmhouse uh, <laughs> about about three months into the into the farmhouse experiment, and so I um, I sunk all this money into renovating the farmhouse and 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 the barn and and the upstairs and the downstairs and everything like that and then um and so i was i was broke and um and so i mean i didn't do it intentionally but i noticed that everything on my next special which was called in this economy um was was based on uh just uh finances and 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 uh what it was like to be to be living in 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 America, right around 2010, was when I wrote most of the stuff. I, I think I recorded it in, in 2012, but it was mostly written by 2000, by 2010, and it just, um, it it really it flowed, and it and it and it um, and it had some stuff about living with a, with a with her, and just some stuff about um, about how difficult it was to to make a living at that time, and and it just um, it was. Um, so I was able, uh, I was able to redeem that. That was that was very important because I think I would have had a a, a crushing um, episode of depression if I hadn't been able to find some sort of meaning in in all the um, in all the pain of losing a girlfriend and then just being alone in the Catskills with a with a with a farmhouse <laughs> that I didn't I didn't I didn't really know how to farm or or uh, <laughs> or any, anything anything like that and I I just um, it was. Um, yeah, it it was a low point in my life, but a, a high point in my in my career because I just kept getting funnier and funnier, and I and I, I think that 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 um, it's it's no longer on Netflix, but it, there's an album, and I think it er, er, er reflects my my life at that time, which is which is um, hard to do. It's it's hard to have a um, a, 
a piece of uh, comedy, really be honest about, about where you are um, in, in your life at that time. Last question, what advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small town like Peabody, Massachusetts, working through odd jobs as a barista and a student teacher and all these crazy things that you did to figure out and hone in on your goal and have the kind of career that you're having? Um, I would say to, uh, to get on stage every night and record your set and listen to it and write it down and, um, and improve it. And uh, what did you say earlier? Rinse, wash, repeat. Just keep doing that. And, uh, and like, th like they told me years ago, don't worry about managers or agents. I, I gave this advice to, um, to a friend of mine, Joe List. He, was, he came to me and he said, um, you know, he didn't have a manager, he didn't have an agent. And it was a couple of years ago. And um, I said, the, the only advice I can give you is just to put your head down and look up in a year. Put your head down and work and look up in a year and you'll see how far you can, you can come if you don't worry about the, about the obstacles and the distractions and the things that are, that are put there to make this thing um, harder. And, uh, and he opens for Louis at Madison Square Garden like regularly. Like he sends me pictures of him at Madison Square Garden. I'm like, he's, he used to open for me and now he's, now he's playing Madison Square Garden, and he's got this uh, this killer career, and he's getting married, and he's and he's um, just uh, funnier than ever. And I don't even think it took a year. I, I I think it was like six to nine months or something like that. But that's what I did with with you, and when, when you told me you're not you're not ready yet. I remember you watched a, a video of me that I got from a Chinese food restaurant called The Kowloon in, in Saugus, Massachusetts. And it had two shows. And one I killed, and the second one was lukewarm. And you, and you watched both of them. You were really, I don't know if you're still as diligent as you are, um, but you were diligent, man. You watched both shows, and you were like, now are you the comedian from the first show or the second show? Because you got to be the comedian from the first show. And um, when you can do that every night, come back and see me. And, um, and I was like, that son of a bitch. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm ready now. Uh, but then I, I, I gave it some honesty. And it was like, all right, I'll put my head down for a year and try to make a better um, first impression the second time around. And, um, and that, uh, yeah, so that, that changed my working with you and, and Maureen Tarrant, who was at the Barry Katz Entertainment Group just changed my life entirely. I was living at home with my mom, and within uh, six months, I had my own apartment in Los Angeles. And I was, um, I remember you uh, just um, being like, dream, it was so cliche and, and everything like that, but it was really touching. You sent me this card, and you're like, dreams, they do come true. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, you corny son of a bitch. But it really, it really I, I, st I still have that, that note from you because it was, um, it, it, uh, there's very few, very few things change your life dramatically. And that was a dramatic change in my life. I moved 3,000 miles away and had, um, and had cash in my wallet for a change. It was really, uh, it was really something. So I'll always be grateful to you for that. And I'll always, I'll always appreciate that. Um, and, uh, 
yeah and and you know when we stopped working together it was it was it was heartbreaking because we were we were really good good friends so um i'm I'm glad we were able to reconnect today and and uh and it and it feels like we haven't uh missed a beat so thanks for thanks for having me on it was an honor working with you and i miss you and i love you and i think you're one of the most amazing people out there thank you so much Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Deborah Stanton from Gardner, Massachusetts. I know it well. Congratulations. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on J Money T T T T T T, November twelfth, two thousand fourteen. Five stars. Headline is great podcasts, and it says, "I love the episodes about stand up." Barry started there. He asks fun questions and seems to be having fun. All right, well, thank you so much, J Money. You are a winner as always this has been industry standard with barry katz me if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you because you're going for life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.